Heads up, word nerds. Not only does this week's podcast contain our usual body language, it also contains discussions of sexual violence and other types of violence that may be triggering to some of our listeners. So plan your listening accordingly. You know, or don't. So you asked me once if I knew any other sex tragedies. Um, the answer is yes, I do. The maid's tragedy is one. But also, I would make the argument that this play, The Changeling, is a sex tragedy. I think there's a lot of tragedy and a lot of sex and, like, transgressive sex in The Changeling. I would call this a sex tragedy, too. Yeah, I'm not sure that I would call it a sex tragedy, but I'm also not sure I wouldn't call it a sex tragedy. So I'm going to let yeah. you have that one. Thanks. <laughs> I needed it. It's been a long weekend. <laughs> Girl. I needed a win. Girl. Welcome to the Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we're drinking tea and also we are Whamlet. <laughs> uh, and this week we're talking about Thomas Middleton and William Raleigh's The Changeling. What? Not to be confused with that movie Changeling starring Angelina Jolie. This is not that. Oh, this, this is, is not The that. Changeling. This is so much better than that. Totally. I didn't see yeah, that movie, this... but I heard it was trash. Yeah, this is The Changeling, not to be confused with Changeling. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy this show and come back for more. Every week, we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Dolores Shakespeare, at what we like to call the 101 level. Except this week, it's not Shakespeare. It's uh, our buddy T-Mids and... Uh, Dubrow. 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 Uh, <laughs> yeah, that so guy. Even when it's not Shakespeare and it's definitely Middleton and Rowley, you're still going to get the introductory stuff. So, you know, that's everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and uh, also what we think about it. So strap in, babies. Yeah, we think some things about this play. So uh, before we dive into any of that, it's time for the rhetorical device of the week. And because we're word nerds, each week we will draw a random device from our handy dandy ASC rhetorical device flashcards. For actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. Basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. Draw a card, right. fancy pants. Fancy pants. Okay, here we go. Are you ready? No. I'm waiting for you to stop sipping on your tea. I'm not ready. I will okay. never be ready. No. All right. Stop. Uh, this one's kind of boring. Lame. Okay. E even for me. Uh, onomatopoeia. Ew. What? Ew. What? Onomatopoeia. No. Veto. It That's is a not rhetorical a rhetorical device. device. No. Yes, it no, is. No, it's not. It's a substitution. It's a substitution of a thing that sounds like a sound. Yeah, it's a word that sounds like the actual sound. That's not a rhetorical yeah. device. That's just a word that sounds like a sound. Boom is not a rhetorical device. Yes, it is. No, it's not. I disagree. I mean, we can skip it because people know what onomatopoeia is, and I don't relish trying to spell it, but like, I can draw again. I veto okay, that fine. hard. That makes me so angry. Onomatopoeia is a form of substitution, disagree. as is metaphor and simile and everything else you learned in I English mean, class. Those I would believe, but onomatopoeia, that's like saying oxymoron is a rhetorical device. Oxymoron is a rhetorical device. It is in this deck. Oh my god! I'm okay. It's. I'll take that one out of the deck later, <laughs> so that we don't run ASC. into this problem. Okay. Okay, but until then, great. Um, Draw a card, fancy pants. Uh huh. Let's try again. Stop. You are not gonna believe this. Oh my god! Wait, is it apostrophe? Oh my fucking god! I'm so angry. <laughs> I quit. Bye. It's oxymoron. <laughs> All right. But also, 
Oh, but this example is really good, though, for oxymoron. Two ordinarily opposing terms adjacent to one another. Beautiful tyrant, fiend angelical, dove-feathered raven, wolfish ravening lamb. Come on, that's Juliet. It's a thing. It's a it's a direction type of All right. rhetoric. I might, I might, I might allow that. But also that's just antithesis. Yeah, but it's like immediate antithesis. Yeah, so what? Unimmediate antithesis is not antithesis? You know, there's plochi and then there's epizoopsis. I mean, They're both repetition. Yeah, I will I will I I'll allow this one, but I am holding firm on onomatopoeia. Fine. I mean, you can hold firm all you want. I mean, at least we got these bad ones out of the way. Um anyway, the rhetorical devices of the week are Boo. onomatopoeia. An oxymoron. We're getting them both out of the way so that Jess continues to do this podcast with me. That's true. I will quit. I will walk out. Um, and also because they're boring. They're nowhere near the fun ones in the deck. So uh, if you don't know what oxymoron is, um, go be mad at your English teacher. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. Plastic so, silverware. There you go. Which I still uh, do it's, not it's think great. is a rhetorical device. Hot, hot ice. Wondrous strange snow. Um, Annie Hoozle, that was that, and uh, it's time to meet the contemporary William Rowley. This is your life. Uh, so he was born like maybe in 1585, we don't really know. Uh, and he died in 1626, so he was what, like, not quite 45. Yeah, they didn't always live long back then. Uh, so he was a playwright and all of his plays, all of them, except for like three, he co-wrote with other people, including and mm. often uh, Thomas Middleton. So he was also an actor uh, who specialized in playing clown characters. Uh, and he was probably also a large man since the characters that he played were specifically fat clowns. Um, like the fat bishop in Thomas Middleton's A Game at Chess and plump porridge in Thomas <laughs> Middleton's Inner Temple Mask. Um, and he also wrote fat clown parts for himself to play, like Jake's in All's Lost by Lust and Bustofa in The Maid in the Mill, which he worked on with John Fletcher. Ooh, the hottie with the body, John Fletcher. Uh-huh. Sexy, sexy J. Fletch. Yeah, so mostly he was a collaborator. There's some evidence that shows in, in his collaborations he mostly handled the comic subplot, although not always uh, in this play as well as a couple others. He also wrote substantial portions of the main plot. He also wrote the clown part for himself in The Birth of Merlin, which is one of his solo authored plays that we may or may not do an episode on. It's a terrible play, but it's got a fun title, so... Mm -hmm. yeah william rowley what you should know is he collaborated a shit ton and also played some fat clowns moving on to we're doing a double whammy of meet the contemporaries this week because we've got this is a collaboration play so our other guy uh in the author section here is tommy middleton aka t mids aka thomas middleton your kbff around the corner uh he was born in 1580 son of a bricklayer don't cock your head at me like that. I just, just, what does around the corner mean? I don't know. Like He's like around the way. He's in the neighborhood. He's the guy. I don't know. Uh, okay. He's Middleton. He's everywhere. It seemed like, know, a, like a butt sex reference. And I was about to be Definitely like. Definitely not. That's a little offensive. It was not, but okay. it was not making a butt sex reference. Great. All right. <laughs> Moving on. No. Sorry. I was being more literal than that. Um, so apart from writing plays of. Uh, fun little tidbit about Middleton. He was also the official chronologer for the city of London from about 1620 until he died in 1627. And he was actually pretty civically involved uh, compared to some of the, uh, some of his colleagues. His work is wildly diverse, uh, even by the standards of his own time. Um, he also, you know, unlike Shakespeare and Fletcher, he did not have an official relationship with any particular company. Uh, he was more of a freelance playwright, um, selling his work to whoever uh, he wanted to sell it to. So that kind of marked him as different. Uh, Middleton's plays are often marked by their cynicism about humanity, kind of like his bro, Ben Johnson. 
um, which is pretty funny. I think he's personally, I think he's better at it than Ben Johnson, and he's very funny. Real talk. He, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he he writes a lot of antiheroes. Uh, you know, which again, pretty common for the Jacobean playwriting scene. You know, they're always like selfish and greedy and self-absorbed. Uh, and we would give you a long list of all of his works, but you're gonna Middleton is gonna pop up again and again and again whenever we do contemporary 101s. So we'll give you more each time we come back around to our buddy teammates. Thomas Middleton and William Rowley. That was some of your life. Some. Just some. Just some. Not all. We'll I mean, it was pretty much all of Rowley's life, but only some yeah. of Middleton's because yeah. we like him better. Yeah, Middleton, like, he has a lot bigger solo a solo repertoire. Yeah. Um, although a big, pretty big collaborator, too. Yep. Yeah, and he and Rowley seem to be a dream team for a couple of plays. So, to jump into The Changeling in our summary, we always like to give an unhelpful title. And mine is more like what I was thinking while I was reviewing this play, which is, isn't a changeling a baby? question mark i mean would that my friend courtney was here to explain to you exactly how you're both right and wrong at the same time uh mm. but she's not here and i do not have her prodigious knowledge of early modern magic and witchcraft and occultery mm. so mm -hmm. all i can say is that you are both right and wrong good to know yeah but that's also my unhelpful title good. which good. is really unhelpful yeah <laughs> uh mine is not five words i cheated this week um, and that is 17th century medical science is totally real. Oh, yeah. Oops. That virginity test, 100% foolproof. Really real. It's totes real. Okay, we're going to give you some dramatis personae, but only the really important ones. But because there are two plots running parallel in this play, there are lots of characters that we need to at least mention in passing. So, first and foremost is Vermandero, the governor of the castle of Alicante, uh, and he's the dad to Beatrice, our tragic heroine. Yeah, so Beatrice Joanna is Vermandero's daughter, and she mm -hmm. is called Beatrice Joanna a lot. Um, although mm -hmm. the speech headings are always just Beatrice, question mark? Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, and and in our of, summary, we're going to call her Beatrice. Yeah, not except Beatrice for like Joanna, right? one, one or two times, I think. Sure. Uh, she has a waiting woman named Diafanta. There's also a noble lord whose name is Tommaso, and he has a last name that I'm not even going to try to pronounce because even when we spent two weeks on this in class, we couldn't pronounce it. So his name is Tommaso. <laughs> Great. Um, Tommaso has a brother named Alonzo, who is the suitor to Beatrice. There's also Alcimero, who is a nobleman and also is trying to get with Beatrice. Mm -hmm. Alcimero has a true blue friend named Jasperino. De Flores is a servant to Vermandero, so he is in the same castle as Beatrice Joanna. Mm -hmm. And then we have uh, this guy named Elibius. Is that how you pronounce it? I okay. have not pronounced it, so sure. <laughs> Great. Elibius, not to be confused with Albus, which is what I kept trying to do with my eyes. I kept mm -hmm. trying to think like Albus Dumbledore, but no, it's not Albus. It's Elibius. Uh, and he's a, a jealous old doctor. Yeah, he's got a servant guy whose name is Lalio. Mm -hmm. And he's got a wife named Isabella. Yeah. Then there is Franciscus who sneaks into the madhouse that uh, Alibius runs and pretends to be mad. Spoiler alert. He's not mad. <laughs> and we also have Antonio who also sneaks into this madhouse pretending to be a fool. And in this play, there is a difference between a madman and a fool, but they're both Apparently, they both belong in the crazy house. Yep. So that's it. That's a lot of characters. Um, Jess, why is this place so goddamn popular? It's not. Um, it's not. <laughs> Should it be? We we maybe need to amend this question for all of the yeah, contemporary plays. Cause yeah, because they're not. None of them are. <laughs> um, yeah. Why should this play be so popular? Well, God damn it. It's got... Yeah, it's got some good violence. I'm a big believer in reading this play. I'm not sure that it should or needs to be performed because of the sexual violence, the manipulation of women, and the portrayal of madmen as objects for ridicule. And mm -hmm. uh, I think I think this this play 
feels very of a time. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how one would stage most of these moments today in 2018 or 2019 or. Yeah, I think you're right. It's tricky. I love this play, but I love a lot of things that have problems. Yeah. And boy, howdy, was this play popular during its time, right? It put Middleton on the map. It's like one of the works he is most known for. People loved it. It's summary time. Mm. So we will now summarize the changeling for you in a segment that this week we are calling The Real Summary Was Stolen by Fairies. And replaced by a changeling. Get it? Because that's what happened with changelings. They were taken by the fairies. Real babies were taken by the fairies and changelings were put in the Full disclosure, Aubrey wrote the summary title this week. Yes, I did. I get to roll my eyes at her for her bad jokes. Since she always rolls her eyes at me for my bad jokes. I think I'm at least on par with your bad jokes. Oh, absolutely. But I still get to roll my eyes at you. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I earned I earned it real hard yeah. with that one. Okay. I sure did. got my timer ready. All right. And my direction to you is to get the lead out. Okay. I'm going to put an egg in my shoe and beat it. All right. What? You never heard that? <laughs> no. What does that mean? Have you never, like, seen Newsies? No. Put an egg in your shoe and beat it means like get the hell out, but like, you know, beat it fast, like get away fast. Put an egg in your shoe, beat beat the egg. Oh my god, Jess. Wow. Wow. Don't, don't you wow me. <laughs> you never get any of my idioms. It's almost like we weren't raised the same way. What? Shocking. <laughs> or even in the same state. All right. Same people. Okay. Okay. Are you ready? I'll get the lead out. Fucking yes. get to it. I believe in you whenever you're ready. Take it away. Okay, great. In Act 1, Alcimero enters from church to let us all know that he's in love with Beatrice, who he just met. And after a little bit of flirting, he proposes to her. And she doesn't answer him, but in an aside, she tells us that her dad just promised her to Alonzo, even though she's not interested in him at all, and likes Alcimero better. De Flores comes in to tell Beatrice her dad is coming, and she's mean to him because he's ugly. She tells him to go away, and instead he watches her from the shadows like a creeper. And then Vermandero arrives and invites Alcimero to his castle, but he also spills the beans about Alonzo and Beatrice getting married, and Alcimero's sad. And as they leave, Beatrice drops her glove, clearly intending for Alcimero to pick it up, but De Flores picks it up instead, and she's totally grossed out. Elsewhere, in a madhouse, Alibius tells Lalio that he can't satisfy his wife sexually and he fears that she will cheat on him, which obviously means that she needs to be locked up with the crazy people. And Lalio agrees because he thinks that it means he gets to fuck Isabella. A guy named Pedro arrives with this patient named Antonio who claims he's crazy, but he doesn't actually seem very crazy. And he pays Lalio a bunch of money to take care of him. And then they madhouse around for the rest of the play, but they're not very important again until Act 5. Beatrice gives Jasperino a note for Alcimero in secret. Turns out De Flores has been eavesdropping on Beatrice's proclamations of love for Alcimero. Alonzo and his brother Tommaso arrive. Tommaso tries to warn Alonzo that Beatrice does not seem like she is into him, but Alonzo does not listen. Diafonta leads Alcimero into a chamber secretly, acting on Beatrice's instructions. Turns out that Diafonta also kind of has the hots for Alcimero. It's like a whole thing. Once Beatrice and Alcimero are alone, she's like, hey, bro, what if we killed Alonzo so that we can be together? He's like, cool, I'll challenge him to a duel. But then Beatrice is like, nah, bro, I'm just going to get DeFloris to kill Alonzo instead. So Beatrice uses her feminine wiles to manipulate DeFloris into agreeing to murder Alonzo for her. Uh, And he thinks that they are totally going to have sex as part of his reward. DeFloris hides his sword in a cloak and lures Alonzo to a secluded place in the castle. <laughs> in Act 3, DeFloris advises that the space is really narrow, and so Alonzo would find it easier to walk if he leaves his sword behind, and then DeFloris stabs him three times with his own hidden sword. And because he can't get this big old diamond ring off of Alonzo's finger, which he wants for the diamond, and also as proof of killing him, he just cuts his entire finger off and takes it with him to show to uh, Beatrice later. Uh, then he hides the body. He goes back to Beatrice thinking they are definitely going to hit it now. And he shows her the finger 
Um, and Beatrice offers to double the amount of money and she's confused by why he won't leave contented because she doesn't get it that he's trying to sleep with her. Um, he finally kisses her in a last ditch attempt to like seal the bargain and she rejects him. Um, and he explains in meticulous detail exactly why she has to fuck him, um, mainly that now he can blackmail her and inform everybody how she tried to murder Alonso and tell Anna Samaro and ruin her life. He also says that life is worth nothing if he can't have her and he's willing to incriminate himself if she she doesn't sleep with him and she tries to impress on him the difference of their social class but he claims that their evil act has made them equal and she realizes that she is part of a big old vicious cycle of sin so no one can figure out where alonzo is because he did vermandero becomes suspicious uh beatrice decides that she has to yield to deforce's sexual demands so she fucks him also she has gotten married to alcimero in the interval she's left alone in alcimero's closet so she decides to snoop because that never ends badly for anyone uh, and she finds a book and some potions that will supposedly reveal whether or not a woman is a virgin because that's real science Beatrice feels icky about sleeping with Alcimero now that she's done it with Deflores, so she wants Diafonta to do a bed trick for her. She makes Diafonta take the virginity test first, just to make sure it works, and also so she can counterfeit the proper reactions later when Alcimero tricks her into taking it. They arrange for Diafonta to go to Alcimero's bed that night and in the pitch darkness and pretend to be Beatrice. Uh, Vermandero thinks that he knows who killed Alonzo. Deflores feels a little guilty about it. Alcimero tricks Beatrice Joanna into taking the virginity test, but because she knows what's up, she's able to react correctly, and no one's the wiser yet. But in Act 5, it's 2 o'clock, and Diafonta has not yet come out of Alcimero's chamber, which makes Beatrice think that she's actually, like, really enjoying fucking her husband, which she probably is. But she's worried that if Diafonta stays too long, Alcimero's gonna get wise, and they're gonna be caught in their little bed trick. Uh, De Flores decides to set Diafonta's chambers on fire to get her out of that room. Diafonta runs back to her chamber and then gets burned, and then De Flores brings her out of the room, and everybody thinks he's a hero. Alcimero accuses Beatrice of being a liar and a whore and suggests that she's been cheating with De Flores, and then she confesses that she used De Flores to kill Alonzo, uh, but tries to say, Oh, I did it because I love you, and my first motive was so, so we could be together. And Alcimero says, mm, I need to think about this. And I need to think about what you've done and you need to think about what you've done. So go be in this closet. Um, so he locks her in a closet. DeFlores enters. Al Samaro gets him to admit to the murder. And DeFlores, under the impression that Beatrice is somehow trying to betray him, exposes all of the infidelity. So Al Samaro puts him in the same closet because that's going to go well. Uh, Vermandero, Alibius, Isabella, Tommaso, and Franciscus enter thinking they've solved the case of Alonzo's murder. They think it's some guys in the madhouse that did it. And it's clearly not. As El Samero begins to reveal the truth, screams are heard from within that same closet. And then Beatrice stumbles out, having been stabbed by De Flores. While she's dying, she confesses her fallen state. And then De Flores admits to killing Alonzo and then stabs himself. And they both die. Um, with his last words, De Flores instructs Beatrice to follow him into death. Ugh, what a dick. And as she dies, she asks for forgiveness. They speak about changes and changelings, which is the only time this whole changeling business ever comes up. Uh, and Alcimero says Beatrice was beauty changed to whoredom and Antonio was changed into a fool and everybody's been changed. La-di-da. We're all changed and these two people are dead. The end. Uh, all right. So let's talk stuff about this ridiculous text. Yeah. So real quick, just to refresh, if you haven't been listening since we talked about Hamlet. Um, a closet in early modern drama is not a closet like where you would keep brooms and vacuums and your stepladder and <laughs> coats. It's not? It's not. It's not but a... I've always wanted to see Gertrude like sitting with a mop. Yeah, no, it's, it's not <laughs> like... that. Uh, in a broom yeah. closet when we when we talk about closets in relation to early modern drama we're just we're talking about like a private room not quite a bedroom um i mean definitely not a bedroom sorry it's not a bedroom but it's like i suppose maybe the best equivalent would be like an office but it's the the sort of the main takeaway is that like it is private it is private you control who mm -hmm. enters it oftentimes it would be the only room in a house that had a lock on the door including your front mm -hmm. door it's a private space okay. not not a broom closet and it's like 
often like adjacent to somebody's private chambers though yeah like adjacent to a bedroom yeah it might be it might be like an antechamber to a bedroom Uh or well i don't know that it would be an antechamber yeah it's near it's in it's part of like the private household rooms so mm-hmm. yeah probably near a bedroom but not a bedroom but it's not a bedroom and not, and not a closet a utility closet <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so not a place where you like hang up your winter clothes no okay no um i Got it. i might be able to say that i am recording in my closet uh not to be confused when i used to actually record in my closet where i kept in my clothes literal in my literal closet, closet <laughs> before <laughs> oh, i had the days an office so that's it on closets also so this is the only early modern play i'm gonna say that and then someone's gonna be like but what about this play this is the only early modern play that i know (laughs) of uh that has a stage direction that happens between acts like Hmm. act two ends and then there's a stage direction and then there's act three starting. Um, and that oh. stage direction is, da, 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 da. in the act time, DeFloris hides a naked rapier. Ooh. Yeah. So this is right before he like murders Alonzo straight up, uh-huh. shanks a bitch. And it's weird. And we're all like, what do we do with this? Well, what we do with this is that this is proof, proof uh, of the interval, the you know intermission being uh-huh. introduced in indoor playhouses for the purposes of tending to candles and in this play specifically shows us how playwrights began to rely on the interval for structural purposes. Nice. Yeah, there's a whole article about this um, by a guy named Mark Hutchings that was in Studies in Theater and Performance, volume 33, number three in 2013. It's a really, really interesting article that also, P.S., cites Ralph Allen Cohen. Mm. and nice paul manzer what yeah nice. it's so cool to know smart people cited in books i know i love i love finding my friends and citations it's one of my favorite things about being in this yeah. business so i want to i wanted to read a little bit of this to you all right so homeboy mark hutchings first of all is arguing that there were intervals between each act when it, this was played indoors at the indoor Mm -hmm. playhouse. So what Mark Hutchings particularly says about this stage direction is, what is novel about this stage direction is that it shows either that the playwrights or actors did not care whether playgoers noticed DeFloris' transgression as he has re-entered the play world while the stage was nominally neutral, or perhaps that they sought to undermine the playgoers' own assumption that the stage was theirs, that the play had given way to them during the interval. Perhaps the choice was made precisely to underscore not only DeFloris' villainy, but his rule-breaking. No law of re-entry for him. What I want to highlight to our listeners and to you is that this is a weird thing, this rando stage direction that happens between acts, specifically between acts, and that it tells us things about playgoing and theaters and playwriting. And what precisely it tells us, we don't really know, but it's weird. Basically, look at this weird thing. Isn't it weird? Yeah. I mean, it's cool to think like, because I know what it's a thing sometimes now to see character business, like either in Mm pre-show or in intermission and like they, they turn, you know, changing of the scenery or whatever into like part of the play world mm-hmm. as opposed to like stagehands just doing the thing. Right. So like, it's interesting to think about whether that experiment was also happening, you know, 400 years ago. Like what did the guy playing DeFlores as an actor just come out and like set his prop for the next act? Or like, did he come out as DeFlores yeah. and like sneakily right. lay down his rapier, you know? Yeah. That's kind of cool. I mean, I, I would be inclined to suspect that it was done in character only because the stage direction says DeFloris and not just sure. in the act time, a naked rapier is hidden. Right. And also, where right. do you hide a naked rapier on a stage? Like, you know, let's think about... <laughs> naked. Right. Let's think about, like, <laughs> I know they've done this at the Blackfriars. I didn't see it, obviously, it was before my time. But, like, where would you hide a naked rapier on that stage? Yeah. Especially where you've an got, audience member isn't going to fuck exactly, with it either. Exactly. Like you've got audience members 
who are going to want to dick around with it. Um, And in, you know, in 17th century London, you know, where playgoing was a very different experience than it is today, I, I imagine that you'd certainly have people more interested in fucking around with a, a stage prop than you would mm-hmm. at, say, the Blackfriars in 2018. Although, right. I was in the Playhouse. I was working, but I was in the Playhouse. Uh, it was R&J. The tour's R&J. So a, a dagger came down on the stage and laid on the stage uh, mm-hmm. where it was supposed to lay. It was just on the floor. And the guy sitting in A1 stood up, picked up the dagger, went back to his seat, inspected it and then put the dagger back on stage it was so and this is this was apparently a guy who just like comes all the time like he's a season pass holder yeah okay and like i went back out and i was like so this just happened (laughs) just fyi uh that wasn't set there for you man don't touch things that aren't yours yeah and it was like it was awful because like i i was like dude what the fuck are you doing and other like playhouse regulars were like dude what the fuck are you doing and all the actors were like dude what the fuck are you doing don't touch my props yeah and then like jeez andrew picked it up and moved it (laughs) so it was more (laughs) upstage and he couldn't fucking do it again yeah wow anyway yeah it's still a problem people will still be touching props that are not theirs yeah they cannot help themselves, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, with even fewer rules in the Jacobean period. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> in the theater right. community. And when like, people would go. You can imagine what they did. And sit on stage with their own weapons. Right. Like. Yeah. You know, what's to stop hotshot Joe Smith from, like, picking up the naked rapier and comparing it to his naked rapier and, like, (laughs) seeing which naked rapier is nakeder and longer. I don't know. (laughs) Or sharper. Yeah. But, I mean, we we know the answer to that. Yeah, anyway. Um, So that's what I have. There's a weird thing. It's weird. There it is. But very cool. Yeah. I think. I mean, it's it's interesting. You know how I love stage directions, so. Yes. Indeed. Law. That's very cool. So on the on the production end, um, my one of my first thoughts was, yay, severed finger and a bed trick and ghosts. I know yay. we didn't mention the ghost. A ghost like we did not shows up twice, barely. Yeah, the ghost of Alonzo like haunts De Flores. Yeah, I mean, for a minute. That's what happens to guilty people. Yeah, like, guilty murderers get haunted by the ghosts of the people they killed. That's a pretty common trope um in early modern theater yeah so that happens but it's always fun it's always fun to stage a ghost uh it's really fun for stage effects to have a severed finger with a big old diamond on it uh big old diamond ring which i find kind of hilarious um because he's like hey what a nice ring uh i can't get it off this guy's fat ass finger i guess i'll just take the whole finger he thinks bye um and then a bed trick and i think this is uh like we said earlier this is like the third play we've talked about on the show that involves a bed trick and a bed trick potentially gone wrong uh i.e the lady in question doing the trickery is actually like enjoying mm-hmm, herself with mm-hmm. this other girl's husband um because apparently all al samaro is like a hottie and everybody wants him um <laughs> i guess i don't know like everybody seems to want to get with him yeah so. i don't i don't know man well, yeah i don't know then you also have um which is another common feature among many Jacobean plays is you've got the main plot and then you've got this kind of rando subplot happening and they're sometimes tied together and sometimes they never meet at all. Sometimes they are true parallel lines that just like, why are these happening in the same play? They don't seem to connect at all. For the Changeling, the the Madhouse plot, and we also didn't mention this in the summary, but the Madhouse plot really only connects with the main plot when the the crazy people are brought up from the madhouse to dance at the wedding party yeah but they don't Um, actually like it we we never see it they're just like rehearsing for it and talking about it right yeah uh but that's how they're connected it's like oh lolio go get the guys for the for the mask for the madman's mask for this wedding and it's like first of all like who the fuck wants a bunch of legit you know mentally ill people dancing for you at your wedding weird. that's weird it's a weird choice and exploitative i think yep but and also really weird yep and then the subplot itself is like 
everybody thinks they're going to get with Isabella and she's kind of like the classic like chaste wife right she does end up staying true to her husband despite the fact that he sends her away to the loony bin because he thinks she's going to cheat on him and she leads a bunch of guys on but she never actually cheats on him and I don't know it makes kind of no sense so you have to you have to figure out if you were going to produce this play um what the hell do you do with that subplot um because it's weird like many of subplots so that's just a thing it's just a thing to think about and and they are connected to the main play but in a really awful way so just something to think about and like stick in your pipe and smoke it i don't have any answers for it i'm just saying you need to think about it but also the main plot of this play has some really tricky subject matter like jess brought up earlier aka you know rape there's a lot of transactional rape happening in this play and like non-consensual touch <laughs> and and the coercion of this young woman and then she in turn coerces another young woman and like uh and all these men like you know it's icky. acting like these women are furniture yeah and, and you know it's it's really icky just really icky well i would just deflores probably should have been in the dick bracket um yeah and that's yeah, that's on me but also, Ugh, you there know, are so there many. are so many plays. <laughs> and Can we bring him in as like a wild card in round two and just like pit him against, I don't know, somebody? Uh, I don't even know. I don't know. But like, he's he's oogie. He's real oogie. Um, yeah. But anyway, I'm sorry. Finish your thought. That was it. Just DeFlora should have been in the, the dick bracket because he, yeah. he a dick. He a dick. Yeah, he's... He's the worst. Yeah. He's the actual worst. I mean, to be fair, it's not nice that Beatrice hates him purely because he's ugly, yeah. but that in no way justifies his coercion and rape of her. Nope. Later, like at all. Nope. It's not okay. Um, so if you know, if you are thinking about producing this play or even talking about this play in your classroom, like deal with it sensitively. It is literally a triggering play you know this is one of those times where i would definitely advocate hiring an intimacy choreographer uh which is like a fight choreographer but for your touchy-feely scenes yep. and, and intimacy in no way always means like kissing and like loving touch it can also mean things like near rape on stage yep. like choreographing those things so that both people involved feel safe and feel like it's choreographed down to the last you know gesture and and that there's a plan and it just it makes everybody feel safer um, mm -hmm. when when trying to stage something like this so i would very much advocate using uh, an intimacy choreographer for something like this and and if you're not producing it if you're just talking about it then talk about it sensitively because this is this is an icky icky play yeah. an icky plot um there's a really really great book by I'm, I feel sure that I've talked about it on the pod before by Kim Solda called um, it's not called Invisible Acts that's the subtitle but it's like violence against women in early modern drama or something and it, she's got a, a whole chapter on the change lane that is straight fire but sort of the, the thesis of this book is that women's bodies in moments of violence particularly sexual violence in early modern drama are not really permitted to matter like most of the violence and most of the sexual violence takes place off stage and you know we might see the lead up to it we might see the aftermath we rarely see the actual act and that is because women's bodies don't get to speak for themselves it's a great book i totally recommend it if you're interested in violence against women in early modern drama kim solga s-o-l-g-a awesome yeah it's a great book so those were the things that that occurred to me for this about this if you were to make it a production um that's 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 what i got um what do you say we play a game let's do it game time and we're doing line roulette this right week in a random act of line roulette <laughs> I lost my sorry. I lost my train of thought right in the middle of that. I was trying to say something clever, and it's Sunday night, and I can't. My brain is mushy. But basically, this is the first time we've ever played line roulette with a non-Shakespeare play. Is it? And it is. Wow. And yeah, uh, and which is why I was trying to think of something clever to say, but maybe just saying it straightforwardly is the best idea. 
Um, and Jess is our brave contestant for this. Yeah. So, because she's feeling fresh, she's feeling fit, yeah, fighting I mean, form about this play. I've read this play four times now, question mark. I've read it twice in this program for two different classes, which is like, yo, nice. can we stop using the Bevington? I would like to read <laughs> some non-canonical shit. Anyway, so... You do the thing, boo-boo. Uh... So, but you have all the dice and you have right. the text and you, <laughs> so this is all you. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. So we're, oh, God, God damn it. Well, that die is gone. Forever. There is no <laughs> act six. All right. Act five. Um, act five where all the juicy shit happens. <sighs> it's always act three and act five where, where juicy shit happens in this place. All right. And I bet I don't have a scene five. Yeah, no, Act 5s rarely go past a 5-2, unless it's Henry V, which I feel like Henry V's Act 5 goes on for like I eight mean, scenes or some shit. Uh, but anyway. A&C has like 12 scenes in oh, That's five. true, because everybody has to have like their own yeah. dying act or some bullshit. Right. I do not have an Act 6, so I do not have an Act 6. I do not have it. Okay, Act 5, Scene 3. There Great. we go. That was the last scene. Uh, awesome. And we're going to go with line 21. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So this is Al Samaro. Ooh. And it is none can so sure. Are you honest? Ooh. That's a good line. Yeah, none can so sure doesn't make sense without Beatrice's preceding line, which is if I sure. can. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. But are you honest? Fuck yeah. me up. <laughs> I don't even need yeah. a goddamn. All right. So this whole play is about people pretending or not pretending, but seeming to be something that they are not. And Beatrice Joanna in particular keeps a whole lot of secrets, tells a whole lot of lies. Um, So are you honest is the thesis of this play. Because the answer is no. No one is honest. Boom. I'm out. Oh, wow. You've got like 30 more seconds. Yeah, I don't even care. I don't even need them. I don't want them. I don't need them. I don't want <laughs> Just reign supreme as the line roulette champion. <laughs> <Da-da-da>. <laughs> Did I do the first one? Was I the first one to do this with Midsummer? You were. And the nut line? Yes, I... Yep. It was like squirrels and nuts. Yeah. And I was like, this is <laughs> yep, fucking it was weird. <laughs> that, was, that was classic. Yeah. That was awesome. All right. Yay. So a little bit of Shakes Bubble gossip now. Um, if you are in the D.C. area, uh, you can actually see a production of The Changeling. Our uh, friend Charlene V. Smith, who is a friend of the program, she's a fellow graduate of our Shakespeare performance program at Mary Baldwin. She has a theater company called Brave Spirits Theater, and they do really challenging works uh, by Shakespeare and his contemporaries um, with a serious feminist bent. So go Charlene, but they're doing the changeling and the Duchess of Malfi in rep right now running through November 18th and you can see it there. If you're not in the DC area, but you are perhaps in the Atlanta area, Resurgence, which operates out of the Shakespeare Tavern is doing the changeling soon? Question mark. I'm not sure exactly when. Cool. Yeah. They're bringing their production to my university in february which is the only reason i know it's happening Mm -hmm. but soon i would assume is when it's it's going up at the tavern so keep an eye out for that also about the tavern oh the tavern and resurgence um is doing a warning for fair women on the 19th 20th and 21st of this month that is in fact thanksgiving week so there's that and it's monday tuesday wednesday um but it's question mark the first time that show has been performed in 400 years question mark amazing and our good friend katie osborne is in it oh katie osborne you remember her she was our titus andronicus expert guest host when we did our titus 101 episode yeah so i didn't realize katie was in that yeah yeah i will not get to see it which is super fucking annoying because of the timing like what are you doing Mm -hmm. what are you doing yeah Monday, Tuesday, yeah. Wednesday of Thanksgiving week. What is that? It's right. fine. 
I'm not angry about it. Um, <laughs> except I'm really angry about it, but it's fine. Mm, yes. Uh, but yeah, so if you happen to be in the Atlanta area, if you're in Georgia, if you're in Alabama, if you're in, I don't know, South Carolina, I don't, I don't know how Get there. far away things are. Um, but yeah, <laughs> like it, I think it would probably be worth it. Yeah, I don't know the play, but awesome. I, I, it's a domestic tragedy. So nice. Take it away. Uh, cool. That's what I have to say. Um, also, also in the realm of our friends are doing some cool shit. If you're in South Dakota, if you're anywhere near the Deadwood-ish area, uh, Black Hills Community Theater is putting on a production of Macbeth right now, directed by our very own Merlin Cusell, who's the fucking best. I love her. So go see it. She's going to do amazing shit with it. I just know she is. So congratulations to Black Hills Community Theater because you get to work with Merlin and you get to do Macbeth. Yeah. Great stuff. Oh, I yeah. bet that's going to be a fucking great production. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Why yeah. am I not in South Dakota? I I'm super excited about it. Um, and then our last bit of gossip is this thing I discovered <laughs> that ya boy, Kenneth Branagh, is at it again mm -hmm. with a... I guess a biopic of, yeah. uh, of Shakespeare. Yeah. It's called All is True, which is a callback to Henry VIII, that terrible, terrible play yeah. that we will discuss on a later time. Yeah. But uh, it's, a, it's a historical drama called All is True, starring Kenneth Branagh himself, big surprise, <laughs> Judy Dench and Ian McKellen. Um, and it's about like the last few years of Shakespeare's life and the premise is that he's returned to Stratford to the family that he's basically abandoned, uh, you know, to be a writer in London. And and that's really all the blurb will say. And I'm reading this from Variety magazine, but it is a project. It is coming up. It is going to be released in 2019, um, but it will have a soft opening in New York and Los Angeles on uh, before Christmas this year, uh, December 21st. Um, but officially released more widely uh, in 2019. So, um, and of course, you know, Kenneth Branagh, again, surprising no one, is going to play the aged Shakespeare himself. Judy Dench will be taking on the role of Anne Hathaway, which is fascinating. So be on the lookout for that. It looks interesting. So... <sighs> I just, but I, like, I needed to say yeah, yeah. what's happening. I needed to talk about So uh, someone put it on Twitter a couple of days mm -hmm. ago and that's that's where I saw it first um and they were like well this is really interesting because obviously since the title is taken from the play that John Fletcher helped write and that he probably wrote the the all is true part of the title um I wonder who's gonna be playing John Fletcher and I was like <laughs> I didn't I did not reply but I was like bruh it's Kenneth Branagh John Fletcher ain't gonna be a character like that's nah. not <laughs> nah, I would love to be proved wrong on that, but yeah, I mean, of the six or eight cast members they've announced, John Fletcher is not a character yet. <laughs> so, but Tom Quiney is, which like what, <laughs> what? Huh? Yeah, Weird. I know. Like ugh, Kenneth Branagh, what are you doing, bro? Yeah, and I mean, I highly doubt it has really anything to do with the play Henry VIII so much as it they just liked that half of that title. It's a good title. Play. It's really, I think it's a great yeah. title for a, a play about not a play, a movie about Shakespeare's last years. Yeah, right. Yeah, which is probably more likely why they lifted it rather than it being tied into that play. Yeah, I'm guessing. Yeah. But then I don't. I don't know. I'm not in on this process. But I doubt I it. Mean, like you said, I, I doubt look, it. Look, if anything is going to make henry eight an interesting play it would be kenneth Branagh putting it in a and movie right like and ian mckellen yeah, yeah that's the only way right. that anyone would be You're right in that play the play it's is the so only bad. chance <laughs> it's the only chance for that shitty play yeah. uh but more on that in january right anyway <laughs> It's dick bracket time. Alrighty, so last week we we started the matchup with uh, Angelo versus Othello, and oh dang, Angelo won by a motherfucking landslide. Oh yeah, across the board so, on all of our platforms. Yeah, uh, yeah. I observed this. I don't know. Maybe last week. Maybe not last week. That like, if you've got even the whiff of rape about you, you go win you advancing yeah um and 
I think I'm okay with that. Like, I'm not going to fight too. it on this one. I might fight it a little yeah. later, but. I mean, Othello was, to be fair, I mean, he acted on his own, mm-hmm. but he was. Set up. Tricked. He yeah. was set up. Right? He was definitely set up in a really manipulative way, whereas Angelo did all the work himself. Yep. So, yep. you know, I think that kind of pushes it. For me, personally, that pushes Angelo over the top, not just the fact that he's an attempted rapist and total icky person. Yeah. Um, but he did that all on his own. So, so real. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, this week, we are matching up Lear, the deadbeat dad and proteus the deadbeat best friend um you remember them lear in the attempt to divide up his country between his three daughters fucks everything up uh and ends up ruining everyone's lives including his own versus proteus the terrible best friend who tried to steal his best friend's girl um and also tried to rape her again (laughs) again with the rape and the stuff um so bad dad versus the bad friend an attempted rapist you choose people you choose who is a bigger dick i mean i feel like i know how this one's gonna go <laughs> but do you well i mean yeah rape again with the the, the taint of rape Ugh, the, don't the, say the whiff taint. sorry <laughs> I, it's a real thing to be tainted yeah, i'm sorry i know but i'm 12 <laughs> <laughs> ah how the tables have turned oh, the- somehow i'm the mature one yeah. on the end of a joke mm. how did that happen? i don't know I don't know either. Who are you and what have you done with Jess Hamlet? Uh, All right, everybody. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. Mm -hmm. Be sure to tune in next week for Cymbeline 101. Um, Real quick, I want to draw your attention to the fact that we're going to be having a super awesome special guest. Mm -hmm. We did this by design. Yeah, She's going to tickle your fancy. Put the date in your brain. It's going to be so good. Ah, we're so excited. Tune in next week. To find out uh, who that is. If yes. you didn't get it. Maybe not. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can drop us a line at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or follow us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes. Or on Twitter at hurlyburlyshake. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shu. You can learn more about him at jonathanshu.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are strictly our own and not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. I know she hates me, yet cannot choose but love her. No matter if but to vex her, I'll haunt her still. Though I get nothing else, I'll have my will. Whamlet it out! It's been six months since I've been on the road Got out of jail six months ago I feel like I'm knocking on Satan's door Cause to tell the truth I can't take it no more Oh, so he's like, in terms of collaborations, he's like the Timbaland He's like Timbaland was to hip hop. He like did a ton of collabos, but not too much solo stuff. I, you're asking that like I know what any of those words mean. <laughs>